When I was a kid, I absolutely loved to read. Uh, I read constantly. We didn't go anywhere in the car without me having a book uh, or several books. Uh, I would, lots of times, if my mom was running into a store, I'd say, Mom, can I just stay in the car and read? Uh, I would leave my friends and playing outside and say, you know what, I'm done. I'm going to go in and read for a while. It was everything to me. I still love to read. Uh, but when I was growing up, it was everything. It was an obsession. It was a passion. And one of my favorite book series growing up was C.S. Lewis's The Chronicles of Narnia. And I first read them in, I think, my middle years of elementary school was when I first read them. And I fell in love with the stories. And they were fascinating to me. And I read the entire series several times in just a few years. I just kept rereading uh, the Chronicles of Narnia. If you've never read them, highly recommend you pick them up. I don't care if you're 10 years old or 70 years old. If you've never read them, take the time and read the Chronicles of Narnia. Now, fast forward to post-college. Uh, I was, I'm in seminary now, and I reread the Chronicles of Narnia uh, while I'm in seminary. And it was a completely different experience for me to read those as an adult, to read those now in a different phase of my life with different experiences in my background, with different knowledge now that I've gained. Uh, because instead of just reading a great story about talking animals and gateways to another world and themes of sacrifice and redemption, those kinds of things I got as a kid, this time I saw powerful symbolism of Jesus of his work on the cross and God's plan to win back a fallen world to himself. I saw allegories to the end times. I mean, there were so many things that I picked up this time that I had completely missed the first time because I was a different person then. It was the exact same story, but my context was completely different. I saw different things on the exact same pages because I was different now. And here's the thing, you can hear the exact same story, but receive a completely different message. And it's very likely during Jesus' ministry and his teaching ministry time on earth, that Jesus would have preached the same messages as he traveled throughout the Galilean and Judean countryside. Jesus probably used the same stories over and over and over again to illustrate different aspects of the kingdom of God and what it is like and how we should be living as his followers. And that's why we see the parable of the soil uh, repeated in Matthew and Mark and Luke. It's why we see the parable uh, of the lost sheep in both Matthew and in Luke's account of the gospel. But here's the thing you might miss as you read through the Gospels and you see the same stories repeating, the context in which the stories was, were used was often very, very different. It wasn't the same context. And as we just talked, talked about, context is everything. When, what we see when we look closer than just, oh, look, it's that story again, because we have the tendency to do that, okay? 
it's just human nature. When we're reading through the Gospels and we, we're reading, maybe you're sequentially through the Gospels and we're reading Matthew, then we're reading Mark, then we're reading Luke. Well, when you see the story come up again, the tendency could be, if you, when we go from Matthew to Mark and we could see, oh, it's the parable of the sower or the parable of the different soils, and we read that again and we're like, oh, well, I just read that, you know, a, a month ago in Matthew and we just kind of give it a cursory reading. We gloss over it because we just think, well, it's the same story. But when we look deeper than that, we can see that it is the same story. But here's the thing. It has a completely different message. We have two different audiences who needed to learn two different lessons. And that's what Jesus did through his telling of similar or even the same stories. Today, we're going to take a look at the parable of the lost sheep, uh, which, as I just mentioned, is found in both Matthew's gospel and in Luke's account of the gospel. And I want to read both tellings of this story to you first, and then we'll take a look at what they both mean. And most importantly, what they mean for us. Because it's always important to know what Jesus said. We should know what Jesus said. But it's so much more significant when we take the next step of asking, what should I do as a result of what Jesus said? How should I be different on the other side of reading this? And what is the Holy Spirit telling me to do? So let's take a look at these two stories. We're going to read the Matthew uh, account first, and then we'll jump to Luke. So Matthew 18, verses 12 through 14. If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, what will he do? Won't he leave the 99 others on the hills and go out to search for the one that is lost? And if he finds it, I tell you the truth, he will rejoice over it more than over the 99 that didn't wander away. In the same way, it is not my heavenly father's will that even one of these little ones should perish. Now in Luke 15, verses 4 through 7, we read a very similar story. If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them gets lost, what will he do? Won't he leave the 99 others in the wilderness and go to search for the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he will joyfully carry it home on his shoulders. When he arrives, he will call together his friends and his neighbors saying, Rejoice with me because I have found my lost sheep. In the same way, there is more joy in heaven over one lost sinner who repents and returns to God than over 99 others who are righteous and haven't strayed away. Now, as I said, they are very, very similar. Some of the language is identical between these two stories. But there are some very significant differences that I want to take a look at today. If we compare the two parables, what we discover that even though the wording is similar, they are not the same parable. It's not just Matthew and Luke telling the same story that they were both there to witness at the same time because they were not told on the same occasion. These were told in, in, they were not told in the same location, not to the same people. The Matthew parable was given to Jesus' disciples. And we see this in Matthew 18, 1. About that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, who is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now, as you can imagine, the disciples approaching Jesus with that kind of question sparked a long, teachable moment as Jesus kind of set them straight. 
uh, between Jesus and the disciples. And this parable was told in that series of stories to help the disciples grow from their question of who is the greatest. The Luke parable, on the other hand, was given to the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the scribes. And we see that in Luke 15, verses 2 and 3. This made the Pharisees and teachers of religious law complain that he was associating with such sinful people, even eating with them. So Jesus told them this story. And then he goes into the parable of the lost sheep. So let's take a look for a few minutes this morning and see what makes these two passages different what message Jesus was trying to get across in each case, and what we need to learn from it today. How do these stories affect us? So let's start with Luke. That was the one that was told to the Pharisees. Jesus taught this parable to them because they were criticizing him. They were talking badly about him for having a meal with tax collectors and other sinners. Okay, Jesus is sitting down with tax collectors and sinners, now, interestingly enough, this, this uh, story is recounted by Luke, not by Matthew. Matthew tells the other story, okay? But what was Matthew in his former life before following Jesus? He was a tax collector. He was one of the guys that Jesus was sitting down and eating with. So ironically, Luke is writing this parable. He's recounting this parable, which is talking about Jesus eating with Matthew and with his friends. So people, these people were looked down upon by the insider religious crowd. Uh, tax collectors were notoriously looked down upon, and rightfully so. They cheated their own people. They lined their own pockets with the money of the, of the Jews as they passed on a portion to the Romans and kept a lot for themselves. Uh, but these, were, these people, these sinners, were looked down upon by the insiders, by the religious crowd. And isn't it good you know, that to see that in 2,000 years, we've moved beyond this, right? That church people don't turn their noses up at those who are far from God and have sin struggles in their lives. I wish that we could say that. I wish that were the case. But unfortunately, we haven't made a whole lot of progress in this area. Way too many people who call themselves Christians reject those outright who believe differently than they do or refuse to associate with people who struggle with the same sins that they used to struggle with or even worse, still do, they just keep it hidden now. People, I, 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 please don't hear me wrong on this. I hate sin because God hates sin. I hate the destruction that it brings into people's lives. I hate that sin keeps people separated from God, not just in this lifetime, but for all eternity. I hate sin. I'm not for one second saying that we should condone sin or take a soft stance on sin. But if you will read the Bible, you will see that God takes a very different stance on sin than he does on those who are affected by it. Let me say that again. God takes a very different stance on sin than he does on those that are affected by it. And we need to do the same. We need to love people. Whether they're part of our church, whether they're friends who live next door, or whether they're somebody who is diametrically opposed to the things we believe in and live a lifestyle that is completely opposite of the lifestyle that we're called to live as followers of Jesus. We need to love people. 
And that command is not rescinded just because somebody lives a lifestyle that we don't agree with. We still need to love them. We still need to treat them as Jesus would have treated them. And listen to God's perspective in 2 Peter 3, 9. The Lord isn't really being slow about his promise as some people think. No, he is being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone to repent. That's God's heart for lost people. He wants everyone to repent. And God didn't just sit back and wait and hope that people would find their way back to him. That wasn't the attitude and the approach that God took. No, this parable tells us how he pursues us. In this parable in Luke, the sheep is described as lost. The sheep is lost. And the shepherd leaves the flock and pursues the one that is lost. He leaves the found and goes to pursue the lost. The Pharisees had almost no contact with lost people. They taught one another. They traveled together. They ignored or were openly hostile towards those outside of their beliefs. It wasn't a very inviting culture. They, they didn't ha exactly have an attractional model of church ministry where people wanted to be around them. Too many church people, unfortunately, are exactly like this. And, and I'm going to refer to them as lighthouse Christians. Okay, and you may think, well, that's great, right? We're shining our light. But here's the thing about lighthouses. They stay on the shore. You know, they sit in a place of safety and shine a light out in, into the darkness just in case someone sees it. And that's kind of how a lot of Christians live. We shouldn't live like this. We need to shine the light of Christ. Absolutely, we're commanded to do that in Scripture. But we need to be willing to wade into the darkness to shine that light in the middle of the darkness. And Jesus showed us what this should look like in our lives. Luke 19, 10, Jesus kind of gave his mission statement here. The Son of Man came to seek and save those who are lost. And the key word here is seek. Jesus sought out those who were lost. He went to them. First of all, he left heaven. He left eternity, he entered our timeline, and pursued all of humanity through his life, his death, and his resurrection. So that was definitely seeking those of us who were lost. But secondly, while he was here, while he was alive on earth, during his earthly ministry, he made a point to go after those who were lost. The tax collectors, the prostitutes, the Samaritans, the thief on the cross next to him. Jesus approached those who were on the outside and reached out to them to draw them to himself. Jesus did not live a lighthouse life. He took risks. He went into the dangerous places. He went to where the broken people got broken and offered to lead them to safety. Guys, that is our calling. We need to go to where broken people got broken and offer to lead them to safety. That's what God has called us to do, not stand in the safety of the herd and just kind of hope that people find their way to us. We need to go to where broken people are and offer them the love of Jesus. Jesus' heart broke for those who were lost in sin and he pursued them. He left his place of comfort and safety. He risked his reputation. He put everything on the line for the chance to see someone place their faith 
in him. So the question comes to us today, what are we pursuing? Are we comfortable staying around people who think like we do, who believe like we do, and are part of the herd? Is that kind of how we live our lives? Or are we willing to step out and pursue those who are lost in sin? Are we following the example of Jesus and loving everyone we meet, even those who are today's version of tax collectors and other sinners, whoever that may be in your mind? I want to challenge you this morning. Don't be a Pharisee. Don't stand at a distance and watch in disgust or even mock those who are driving at breakneck speed down a highway that ends in hell. Don't allow yourself to remain calloused to the sin that is destroying people's lives. The heart of Jesus is for those who are lost. And if your heart doesn't break for the things that break the heart of Jesus, you're not as close to him as you think you are. Let me say that again, because this is a really powerful truth that can really upset the apple cart in a lot of our faith stories. If your heart does not break for the things that break the heart of Jesus, you are not as close to him as you think you are. Because if you really have a relationship with God, God will give you the desires of your heart. He will impart to you. He will implant deep within you those desires that you should have. That your heart will start to yearn for the things that his heart longs for. That your heart will break for the things that his heart breaks over. That's how we need to be moved is by the things that move God. Pray for a heart that is broken for lost people. And then pray that you will be moved to action. That you wouldn't just sit and feel bad for them, but you would do something. Reach out to someone. Show them God's love. It won't be easy. It won't always end well. It will often be messy. Now, I, I don't brag on my wife often enough. So I'm going to do a little bit of bragging on her this morning. Because God has blessed me with a woman to spend my life in ministry with who absolutely gets this. She, her heart breaks for the things that breaks God's heart. Her heart breaks for lost people. She walks through other women's personal hell time and time and time again. And I watch her do this. Her heart breaks for broken people. I've seen her spend hours talking someone through a crisis, often due to their own poor choices. The kind of things where some Christians would step back and say, well, they got themselves into this mess. But she's willing to walk through it with them. I've seen her drive for hours to help them. I've seen her do it again for the same people because they went and made the same poor choices again. And she's still there and she's still willing. And I pray that God gives me the same heart for broken people that Melissa has because it's the heart of Jesus. And I'm still a work in progress here. And Melissa would say the same thing, not that I am, but that she is too. Well, she'd probably say that about me but because we all are. We're all works in progress in this area. But we need to pray that God continues to break and soften our heart for lost and broken people. It's hard, but then there will be those times when, as Jesus said in the parable in Luke 15, 7, there is more joy in heaven over one lost sinner who repents and returns to God 
than over 99 others who are righteous and haven't strayed away. And there is no better feeling in the world when God uses you to see someone cross that line of faith and make a decision to follow Jesus. So if the Luke parable is about reaching the lost, something we all need to be engaged in, how is the Matthew parable any different? Let's take a look. The first major difference that you need to see in the Matthew passage is that the sheep is not lost, the sheep has wandered away. Several times it's referred to as wandering away or strayed. It's, it's left. The Luke parable, parable that we just looked at was evangelistic, reaching outside the flock. This one is pastoral, protecting those in the flock and keeping them safe. Jesus is teaching his disciples here. Like I said, this one is, is taught to his disciples. He's teaching them how to act as part of the kingdom of God, as part of the church that he was about to establish. And his audience is the disciples. They were arguing about who is the greatest. They were struggling with their own pride. And here's something important to note about pride. We need to get this. Our pride isn't just sin for us. It's a stumbling block to those around us as well because pride is contagious. When you wrestle with pride with those that you're close to, they're going to wrestle with the same issues. When you give in to your prideful desires and begin the comparison game or the inferiority complex or the boasting or the gossiping, and all of those are rooted in pride. Every one of those has its root in pride. What you do is you open the door into someone else's life who may struggle with the same issue. You've now engaged them in your sin issue. And so to help them understand this principle, Jesus uses this parable. And because Jesus wanted the disciples to be more concerned about doing life together, about doing ministry together, than about being known as the greatest. And we need to have that same perspective. It's not about individual accolades. It's about kingdom wins. That's why there are no unimportant roles in the church. Stacking chairs, leading worship, teaching Sunday school, running lights, holding the door open, or preaching a sermon. Every person works together to reach people for Jesus. No one person is any more important than any other because we each have a job. We each have a responsibility. We each have a role. And God wants to use you, and we do it together as a church. So the first thing Jesus hits them with here is the example of the shepherd. The disciples were leaders. And they were going to be the elders in the early church. They were going to train and equip others to send them out. That's the role of a pastor, to train and equip the saints, to build them up for works of service, to release them in ministry, to send them out. And as leaders, we need to be more concerned about those entrusted to our care than comparing ourselves to other leaders. We need to be more concerned about those who are entrusted to our care than in comparing ourselves to other leaders. You didn't see the shepherd in this parable boasting to the other shepherds about how great his flock was. You didn't see him bad-mouthing another shepherd to his buddies to try and improve his standing. He was doing what shepherds are supposed to do, and that is care for his flock, specifically the one who was wandering, who had strayed away, who was drifting off course. And he was doing everything he could to bring the wandering sheep back. And here's the thing. You might hear what I just said 
and think that this is written and only a message for pastors. And pastors need to take note of this. But I'm not here today to bash other pastors. I'm not preaching to them. And I'm not here to bash you either for that matter. Uh, but the point I'm trying to make here and the question I want us to be asking is this, am I, you need to be asking this question yourself, am I looking out for the rest of the flock? We're all called to be leaders. Not one person who is a follower of Jesus is exempt from leadership. We're all supposed to be influencing those around us towards Jesus. That's, that's leadership in a biblical sense is influencing others towards Jesus. And we need to hear the same lesson the disciples did. Stop comparing yourself to those around you and start looking out for those around you. Because someone is wandering. Someone is straying down the wrong path. Someone has stopped connecting, they've stopped engaging, and they're at risk of getting lost. Now, one of the best examples I've ever seen of this is Pastor Ken. He's constantly asking himself the question, who do I need to reach out to? Who needs to be contacted? Who needs to be connected? Who needs to be drawn closer? And then he does it. His cell phone is the tool of his craft. And I would bet most of you received a text from him at one point or another, don't forget, or haven't seen you in a while, hope all is well. He doesn't want anyone to wander and he's willing to leave the 99 in a heartbeat to pursue the wanderer. And I'm grateful that Pastor Ken is a part of Trilogy because this truly is his heart, is to see people connected and to keep them connected. Here's a great verse illustrating what we're talking about here. And, and I, I almost hesitated to use Pastor Ken as an example there because he's a pastor. And the tendency can, for us to, as part of the church is to think, well, that's the pastor's job. All of them, they've got to connect people. They've got to keep people connected. No, it's all of our responsibility. We're all responsible to and responsible for one another. It's not just the role of a pastor. It's, it's a follower of Jesus. It's a part of his body. And we need to be willing to reach out to those around us. Here's a great verse that illustrates what we're talking about here. 1 Thessalonians 5.14. Brothers and sisters, we urge you to warn those who are lazy, encourage those who are timid, take tender care of those who are weak, and be patient with everyone. Now, what is this verse saying? Watch out for each other. Help those who are struggling. Keep your eyes open. Watch those around you. We're here for one another. We have one another's backs. That's what the church is for. If someone seems to be drifting, ask them if everything is going okay. Ask them if you can pray with them. If you haven't seen them in a while, reach out to them and ask them, hey, what's going on? Are you all right? And if you're wrong, if everything's fine and they're in a good place, they'll be thrilled that you love them enough to ask. Or at least they should be. There's no downside here, folks. You're just letting people know that you care. Now, the second lesson the disciples needed to learn from this parable is about the sheep. The sheep were safe when they were together. They were stronger when they were a flock, but they were weak and they were vulnerable and at risk when they strayed away, when they got separated. And you have to understand the church was never meant to be an individual sport. It's always been a team game. 
Actually, better stated, following Jesus was never meant to be an individual sport. It's always been a team game. We follow Jesus in the context of community. Some people think they can make it alone. You know, they can do it by themselves. It's just me and Jesus. But here's what you need to see. You look at the pattern of, of his life. Jesus wasn't just Jesus. <laughs> it wasn't just him. He called the disciples to do it with him. Yes, there was a teaching component to that. He needed to, to get them ready and prepare them. But when he went to pray in the garden and he was at the end of his strength emotionally and physically, he called his three closest friends to come with him, to support him, to join with him. Jesus modeled for us what we need to live out and that is that we are better together. Ecclesiastes 4, 9 through 12, two people are better off than one for they can help each other succeed. If one person falls, the other can reach out and help. But someone who falls alone is in real trouble. Likewise, two people lying close together can keep each other warm, but how can one be warm alone? A person standing alone can be attacked and defeated, but two can stand back to back and conquer. Three are even better, for a triple braided cord is not easily broken. And the principle here and the biggest challenge I can give you from this passage is this. You need the church. You need community. You need one another. Don't let the devil deceive you into thinking you can make it on your own. Jesus needed others, and so we certainly do as well. And the devil would love to get us isolated. You know, the Bible describes the devil as, as what? As a lion who's seeking whom he would devour. And lions are famous for picking off the members of the herd who wander, who are on the outside, who stray away from the safety of the pack. And the devil is no different. He wants to get you alone, away from your support, away from those who love you and uh, who love you enough to keep you on the right path. And that's when he hits the hardest. And that's one of the reasons that I push neighborhood groups so hard. That's where we find real community. That's where we get in the trenches with people. And if you haven't joined a neighborhood group yet, please let me know and I'll help connect you with one. Reach out to me and I would love to get you connected with a neighborhood group. One final thought and then we'll close this morning. Even though these two parables have different messages to different audiences, we can't really separate them because the messages are intertwined. The impact of each teaching affects the other in a very powerful way. Here's two thoughts. We can't reach lost people effectively if we're not living in healthy biblical community. We can't. We can't go out and enter the darkness and go to where broken people got broken. <coughs> we can't do that if we're not living in healthy biblical community. We need that support if we're not connected. But then the other side of this is just as challenging. If we're part of the herd and we're not reaching the lost, then what's the point? What are we even doing this for? If we're just part of a herd just to feel safe and comfortable in the herd, then we're missing the whole message of Jesus. And that is the gospel. And that is lost people need the love of God. And we are here to show them what it looks like. Take some time today and ask yourself if you are one of the disciples Jesus was talking to. 
needing to be reminded of the importance of caring for and being accountable to one another, that you need to reprioritize the community aspect of church and doing life together. And also take time to ask God, maybe you're one of the Pharisees that he was talking to. And you need the reminder to be willing to step into the darkness and rescue people from it. That he would increase your love and your broken heart for the broken. Whichever applies best to you right now in this chapter of your story, let's listen to the words of Jesus. Let's follow his example, which really is what parables are all about. Let's pray. God, we thank you this morning for your teachings. God, they're so simple and yet so challenging and so difficult sometimes to live out. But God, you gave us these teachings to help us stay on the right path as your followers. And God, I pray that you would help us to uh, understand and recognize the importance of living in community of being accountable and responsible to and for one another, that we would, we would love each other enough and care about one another enough to call one another out when we're starting to drift and, and pull away and separate ourselves. And God, I pray that you would help us to, to be discerning. Holy Spirit, uh, cause us to, to see those who are, are drifting and let us take action. And God, I also pray that you would help us to have a heart for lost people. God, let our heart break for the broken. And God, let it move us beyond just feeling sorry for, but God, let us move us to action. Let it move us out of our place of comfort and safety. And God, let us wade into the darkness where, where broken people are and let us shine our light there. God, let us be willing to, to walk through the, the broken circumstances. Let us be willing to get our hands dirty and, 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 and take risks to see lost people find faith and, and, and find a new life in Christ. And God, I pray that we would be uh, used, that we could be a part of the process to see people uh, be brought back, to see people restored to right relationship with you. And God, that all of heaven will rejoice and we get to be part of that. God, help us this week to make some decisions, to take some steps, to move in these two areas. And God, let it uh, cause Trilogy to be a different church. Let it cause every one of us to be different followers of Jesus. We thank you, Lord. We want to follow you the best that we can. Help us to do that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.